As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. Conflict is a very natural part of human relationships. And yet for so many of us, we are simply inept at really knowing how to find resolution to the conflict. My guest today is Robin Watts. Robin is a licensed professional counselor, and she is the owner of Eagle Counseling here in North Texas. She's devoted her practice to helping families in the midst of conflict, and she's often called upon by judges and other professionals to help educate us on how we can better enable our clients to work through those conflicts. Robin, I'm so excited to have you here today and to talk about the subject of conflict. Thank you for having me. I want to start off by just giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing uh, with families in conflict. Sure. Well, most of my practice is devoted to helping families that have been affected by separation or divorce that are experiencing conflict, maybe in the co-parenting relationship. They might be in the middle of a custody battle. There may be a parent-child contact problem where a child is resisting contact with a parent. And so, as you can imagine, that, that creates a lot of conflict for people. And it's, it's a service that I never really set out to provide. Uh, almost 10 years ago, I was leasing space with a colleague of mine and she was collaboratively trained and she she was discussing with me how in the collaborative divorce process she has an opportunity to really help families that out of a court situation to move through conflict in healthier ways and so that piqued my interest and i went to a luncheon sponsored by the collaborative divorce group in denton and became even more interested in how I could help families in an out-of-court situation. And so I went to the basic training and I also enrolled at the alter in the Alternative Dispute Resolution Program at UNT and completed mediation negotiation of family mediation courses. And so although I never really set out to work inside the context of the court system with high-conflict families, as a result of being trained collaboratively and working closely with family law attorneys, I started to get court orders for services like individual counseling or, or co-parenting coaching or parenting facilitation. Um, I do lots of work now in family reunification services where for whatever reason, parent children have possibly become triangulated into the conflict and now what was once a healthy parent-child relationship has now become fractured. So although, again, that was never really my intent to work in the courts, I would say probably 98% of my practice is a combination of litigating families or collaborative divorce. That's cases. so interesting. Um, and I love how the path just sort of opened up for you as you started walking through it. It's a um, similar experience for me. Uh, but I want to talk, I, let's go and talk about actual like conflict to sure. really kind of destruct what is conflict and where do we see it escalating and, and what in, in talking about tools to kind of de-escalate it. So I'll just give you an opportunity, first of all, how do you as a professional define conflict? That's a great question. I define conflict as behaviors. Conflict is really 
how you manage conflict or the tactics that you use to problem solve and to get your point across to other people. And so I differentiate between constructive conflict behaviors or tactics and destructive conflict behaviors or tactics. And there's a difference. And, and then, of course, there's the place in between where as humans, sometimes we use a little bit of both <laughs> because we're human. But what's healthy is that if we're going to lean toward one side or the other, to lean toward the side of constructive. And constructive conflict is characterized by the ability to stay grounded mm-hmm. and, and in the connection zone, kind of like you and I are right now. I mean, Nobody's triggered, nobody's buttons are pushed, you have good eye contact, your body language is relaxed. When folks come into my office with that kind of demeanor, I know that they're not in the conflict zone necessarily. And so constructive conflict, to answer your question, looks like the ability to stay grounded, to consider multiple perspectives, to be a flexible thinker, to recognize when we're about to become emotionally dysregulated and manage that before it transitions into extreme behaviors to do a self-check and a self-check means that i'm aware of myself of space time the people around me it's a really grounded balanced place i call it the connection zone destructive conflict on the other hand is characterized by blaming behaviors an escalation of behaviors that we know are driven by intense emotions, defensiveness, mm. criticism, um, contempt, accusatory language, aggressive body language, stonewalling, which others may call freezing out, freezing mm-hmm. somebody out, which is really an avoidant coping mechanism. So there's a lot of literature out there to teach us about what the difference is and how to teach families how to understand that so they can apply that to how they do family relationships. One of the things I think is so challenging about conflict, just um, as a human being, with my own personal experience in dealing with conflict, is how how reactive it is in that moment, the kind of the biology takes over. And, you know, when, when it, when you are, even when you are aware, it still can be hard to, you know, control your own uh, natural responses in that moment. Can you kind of explain to us a little bit about maybe the physiology of what's happening in conflict? Sure, I would love to. So as a clinician, there's a theory behind what you just mentioned called polyvagal theory. The clients that walk into my office really don't want me to talk to them about polyvagal theory. Because <laughs> right. they, they, they don't, they're not going to remember that. But we as clinicians know, know the the science behind that. And polyvagal theory is what most people know as the, the fight, flight, or freeze response. Right. And so the fight, flight, freeze response is an adaptive coping mechanism that has evolved from, from the evolution from, from years ago, just needing to survive. And so the fight, flight response is a place of mobilization. Our sympathetic nervous system has hijacked our ability to understand the consequences of some of our decisions and the fight or flight looks like name calling hitting people shoving people um, slamming doors it's it's a very visible place of becoming emotionally dysregulated and the opposite of fight or flight is the freeze response so i can't not big enough to fight you. I can't outrun you. This isn't working for me. And when I'm talking to kiddos about it, I call it the tornado. 
the tornado mm-hmm. response. Over here is the freeze response. And this is a place of immobilization. This is a place where the parasympathetic nervous system is guiding our, our thinking and our feeling. And it looks like a place of numbness. It's a place of isolating, of avoiding, of withdrawing. And I talk to kids about the, tur- the turtle and the tornado, and they can, <laughs> they can understand that. And the interesting thing is that the more one tornadoes, the more somebody else turtles. And so what happens, particularly in high conflict family situations where there may be litigation present, is that parents often start to pathologize behaviors that are really just adaptive coping responses that were likely learned in childhood. Mm. As a child, if you grew up in a high conflict home, you may learn to turtle to keep yourself safe. And and I have had kiddos in my office when I say, what are you? Are you a, tur- a turtle or a tornado when you're in conflict or when you're having an argument with your parents? What's interesting is uh, a kiddo may say, well, I'm a turtle, but um, what's on the inside, they're both really places of being emotionally dysregulated. They just look very different. This The turtle could look very calm, like they have their act together when their insides are just a mess. And this person over here that's tornadoing, <laughs> it would be really easy to pathologize that person as they're just crazy. They're in, and, and often it's not about a mental health issue or pathology. It's about these are behaviors that we've learned that to, to cope or, or to adapt with things that we don't understand or we don't have a language to work through. So what I hear you saying is, I mean, really they're, they're survival um, yes. at a very base level mm-hmm. and just that protective mode, whether it is the turtling or the tornado, yes. but not pathology. Right. So what do we, um, so if, if somebody who's acting out as a tornado is not necessarily pathological and same for the turtle. Right. Uh, what, how do we move that? How do we, that, that signals to me that there's hope um, for helping people move through those kind of behaviors. And so what is that? How do we do that? Well, so I start off in my office by talking to people about how we are going to set them up to have learning conversations. And a learning conversation requires first that you avoid the truth assumption. Okay, what's the truth assumption? (laughs) The truth assumption is that I'm right and you're wrong. All right. Or that my reality is the only reality that's true. The truth assumption is that there's one true way or right, wrong way of looking at things. And what I find when I have parents and children that are willing to come into my office and do the deep work of cultivating self-understanding and emotional, emotional awareness and awareness of themselves and others is that it's often not about being right or wrong, it's about what's important to people. Mm -hmm. So even though there may not be a perfect resolution to the conflict, being heard and having your feelings acknowledged sometimes can be so reparative that it it will put relationships on a different trajectory. And so there's a really structured way that I teach families and their children how to do that. It seems a little mechanical at first and I assure them that if you practice this long enough, just like riding a bike or skiing or one, you know, a skill that we need to practice repetitively, that over time it will just be how you communicate with each other. So, for example, is this a situation where you know 
really getting curious maybe and staying in that genuine curiosity, not in a patronizing, you know, what the hell were you thinking? That's not effective, but really, if you really are interested in, you know, tell me what you were thinking. Like, what did this look like to you at the moment? Is that, does that sort of help us flip the switch? Absolutely. And and so I want to set comment on, on even what you just said about what the hell were you thinking? That was really a judgment disguised as a question. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so a curious question could be, can you help me understand how you got to that decision? Mm-hmm. And and those those kinds of conversations do work with children. My kiddos are all grown up now. My oldest is actually a therapist and she'll say, okay, therapist, mom. But <laughs> This is a healthy way to communicate, and we want to teach our children early how to communicate in that way to maximize their ability to hear other people and also to be heard. Because if you want to be heard, you have some responsibility to deliver your message in a way that somebody can hear it. And if you're using constructive conflict tactics, you can almost guarantee that your needs are not going to get met and nobody's going to hear what you're going to say because you're going to put them on the defensive. Oh, the defensive. So that is, I mean, that is that triggered response. And I guess that that's where it shows up, whether it's the tornado or the turtle, both being very defensive reactions in that moment. Well, people often feel defensive when they feel like they're being attacked. Mm-hmm. Instead of sort of saying, what? What was it you said? Why the hell did you do that? <laughs> as opposed to, can, can you help me understand how you got to that decision is like is going to be less likely to push somebody's buttons mm-hmm. and get them to those places of being emotionally, prevent them from getting to those places of being emotionally dysregulated, where we know that we no longer have the ability to stay up here in our prefrontal lobe and, and problem solve and do the hard work of asking curious questions. And I also point out to people that you can ask questions and have feelings that are different. And that doesn't mean that, that both perspectives aren't equally valid. One of the things I notice is, um, you know, it, anytime I feel like somebody's trying to persuade me to to see the world in their way or to, you know, to take action that they want to be taken. I mean, that's where I notice sort of that defensive part can come up. And so I I would expect that if I'm, if I'm really getting curious and really wanting to listen with some, to somebody, I have to do so really with a desire to understand, not with a desire to get them to you know, follow my outcome. Absolutely. It's about listening for understanding instead of Mm -hmm. listening to respond. It's so hard. Why is it so hard? Because we want to defend ourselves. We want Mm -hmm. to share our perspective. But if you go into a conversation knowing that you each are going to have an opportunity, that if I can just stay grounded and listen (laughs) and really listen for meaning so that I can really listen for the feelings that are that are driving this conflict, that you're gonna do the same thing for me. It has to be reciprocity. And so I often coach parents and children to have that check-in question. Are you in a place to have an intentional conversation with me? It's about intention. And sometimes we're not. That's right. You have to be honest with that and check in with yourself. You really may not be in the place where you can do that. If you've worked an eight hour day and you've given, given, given to your clients and you've had power crunch bars for lunch all day and Diet Coke and you missed your exercise class and you walk in the door and 
um, you know, everybody wants a piece of you. <laughs> Sometimes that's hard. And so it's important to do the check-in with whoever you're wanting to have a learning conversation with. Say, are you in a place to have this conversation with me? And if you are, here is the issue. And here's how I'm feeling about this issue. And here's my thoughts behind this issue. And, and just because I think and I feel this way doesn't mean that it's true. It means I need your help to rewrite the narrative of, of the assumptions that I'm making up and what I'm assigning to you because I don't want to blame you. I want to problem solve with you. And that's the beauty of what we do in collaborative. Right. That I get these parents early and I get to have these conversations with parents often before we have our first joint meeting. Say, here's what we're going to do. Here's what you're signing up for. You're signing up for a process of intention and empowerment and constructivism. And I'm going to teach you some really constructive ways to, to move through this process with the help of a highly skilled team who has a lot of training in knowing how to stay in their lane. And my lane is all things communication. Right. Right. And now I love, you know, in the collaborative process, it's so focused on problem resolution, which just going back to what you were saying, I mean, when we're in that, that fight, flight or freeze mode, mm -hmm. coming up with solutions is extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and if we can calm the nervous system, get grounded, as you said, then we can open up our brains for solving problems. Absolutely, because our autonomic nervous system in the in the freeze or fight flight has hijacked our ability to do that. Right. And I think that's one of the the advantages of having a collaborative divorce process is that you have a mental health professional who can give some parent give parents and uh, sometimes their kiddos if there's an a, adult child specialist or a child specialist involved in the process. That's one addition that sometimes we utilize and sometimes we don't. But I had the opportunity to talk to parents about this is what is happening to your body and it's normal. Mm -hmm. And you guys have likely been in these dysregulated states with each other for a long time. So I kind of expect you to walk into the door feeling nervous yeah. and anxious and scared because you don't know what you don't know. And as an MHP, I'm really good at bringing people to this place of redirecting them and, and rephrasing so I would just want to say MHP is what we call our shorthand for mental health professional. Yes. And so when a lot of people don't know, when you sign up for the collaborative divorce process, um, oftentimes we're working with a team of professionals. Mm -hmm. And one of those professionals is the mental health professional mm -hmm. whose role is to help with the communication. Mm -hmm. uh, help with the communication. I help parents sometimes with parenting plans. If they have minor children, I'm seeing a lot of divorces recently where what we call gray divorces okay. where there aren't minor children but our children are our children until the day that we die and i don't know that even even though we can switch to something a little more um, even handed in, in the dynamics we're still the parent and they're still the kids and some of those issues that affect minor children also affect adult children loyalty conflicts alignment issues caretaking of parents and I have an opportunity to say to say to the divorcing parents whether your children are minors and I'm helping you with a parenting plan or they're adults and you're wanting to preserve family relationships post-divorce here's some things that can come up for you that you may not be aware of and, and it's likely that there's 
not been great communication behavioral dynamics from for a long time otherwise they wouldn't be getting a divorce so there's a reason they're getting a divorce right and i and i love in collaborative we are having conversations beyond just what is a judge going to decide and because in litigation the judge isn't going to take into consideration the the older children, the adult children, really right. the judge will focus only on minor children if there are. But in collaborative, we can have a much more holistic approach to your family as you move through the divorce process. Absolutely. It's a very customized, goal-driven process where it is their process. Now, it's their process with some parameters that we all have to follow legally and ethically. Right. But it is ultimately their process and they can have some creativity in, in how they share the share their child rearing duties post-divorce that you may not necessarily get in a litigated process so i think there's many benefits to that kind of you know i want to go back because um it's 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 so interesting to me and i think a lot of people don't realize of course the court system is a method of dispute resolution right when people can't reach agreement then you go to a third party and you ask the third party to make the decisions on behalf of your family um and it is really structured as a win-lose i mean you know you're going to go in and you're going to argue your case as to why the judge should give you what you're asking and why the other side is all wrong um but when we're in a collaborative process we're we're not constrained by the same constraints of course in litigation you have you have much more flexibility in terms of the outcome and in problem solving. And that's where I think when we talk about that triggered state, which we mm -hmm. find often in litigation, people, you know, you are being accused of things all the time. Right. And it really isn't problem solving. And yet in collaborative, it is problem solving. And what do you see? Because you're working with families that are both in litigation and in, in collaborative. What do you see as the biggest outcome for the family, the differences in outcomes for the family? That is a great question. I think the primary difference that I would see is that a collaborative process sets these families up to have healthier relationships post-divorce. We know that litigants do not make good co-parents. Yeah. And often the children become involved in this and the children are, are pressured to, to pick sides between people that they love, that they have attachments to. And litigation can create scars to family relationships and parent-child relationships that become really difficult to resolve if, if they're ever resolvable. And that's often when I get folks in my office that have been litigating, by the time they get to me, one, they may be broke and they really don't right. even have the money to afford services because they've spent all their money on legal fees and going back and forth to court over enforcement issues and visitation issues. And I think the collaborative allows us on the front end to do some early intervening. And borrowing from the medical model, we know that early intervention is key, that you want to detect a medical problem or a health issue as early as you can. Identify it really early and figure out how to treat it. And I think high conflict is the cancer of family mm. family situations right now. And so I, I work uh, with the judges a lot in Denton County, different roles. I'm, I'm part of the drug court treatment team. And so I meet regularly with, with different judges to, to help citizens in our community with substance use issues. But I often tell judges, we need these people early. The earlier, the better. 
And so I love it when attorneys early in the process, uh, even if it is a litigated process, sometimes will send me people and say emotions are raw. We really need your help to facilitate a process where these clients are able to, to stay in this litigated process, which is what they've chosen to do, but to do it in a healthier way. So there's lots of different ways that mental health professionals that are trained in alternative dispute resolution methods can help attorneys and doesn't always require a court order. Most of my clients in, in my office right now are court ordered or part of the collaborative process, but there are numerous calls actually that I get from different people who say, my, my attorney said that I need to come work through your co-parenting curriculum. <laughs> and I have a co-parenting curriculum. It's a six session curriculum that I work parents through. And I tell them at the beginning, I'm gonna give you skills. We're gonna do this over a period of six sessions. And at the end of the six sessions, if you still choose to shoot yourself in the foot, then that's on you. I've given you the skills and you have a choice whether you apply them to how you do conflict in co-parenting or with your child or whatever the, the issue may be. That's great. Um, I, I am so thankful for you taking time to come and talk today. And I just think kind of as we wrap things up today, what is a message of hope you have for people maybe who are living in a high conflict situation with a co-parent? I think the message of hope is that you have a choice and you don't have to live in conflict. In the age of the internet, you could have college in your car essentially and listen to what I've, everything that I've said today, I'm sure could be found on the internet and it's in the social sciences literature about family dynamics and family systems and conflict and high conflict. So there's a lot of resources out there. There's clinicians out there that are trained to really focus on the communication part of a relationship. And if that's your issue, find the clinician that's trained to meet your needs. Another thing I often tell parents in my office, if, if your kiddo fell off their bike and broke their arm, you're not gonna take them to the dentist. Even though that dentist is really qualified and, and very knowledgeable, you're gonna take them to somebody that specializes in the issues that you need treatment for. So it's the same in the mental health realm. I'm not the kind of therapist who really focuses on um, yoga to help my clients move through their problems. I'm, I'm pretty direct. Um, <laughs> I, I often, and I, I tell folks at the beginning, I may step on your toes, but I'm gonna do it in a respectful and a kind way because you're gonna hear some things in here that might be hard to hear. Right. But if you want to improve, sometimes we have to hear those hard things and figure out how to have those difficult conversations. Growth can be so challenging. Growth is painful. <laughs> but it is important to have a wonderful mental health professional who's helping you navigate that. You shouldn't have to do it alone. And, um, and I just thank you for sharing your wisdom and passion for families. If you want to learn more about Robin Watts and about her practice, now you can get in touch with her. Maybe you know somebody. Um, if you're not going through it yourself, you may have a family or friend who is in the midst of a high conflict situation. Um, so we hope that you'll reach out to her. And if you liked what you've heard today, we also hope you'll subscribe and stay tuned for more information about divorce and how families can make better decisions in the divorce process. Thank you.